Father God, every day we want to praise and extol your name forever and ever. For you are God, our King, and we praise your name. You are great and most worthy of praise, and your greatness no one can even begin to fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. Tell of your mighty acts. Speak of your glorious splendor, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. O oh God, you are great and greatly to be praised. We pray that this prayer would not just be for one generation, the next generation, as, as Lena and I do pray this for our next generations, that they will commend your works. But that's our prayer for all of us, God, that we will not be silent, but we will tell of your mighty acts, of your goodness and mercy that is following us, as we just sang about. We do praise your name for your goodness and mercy towards us, because that's what drew us to you. We marvel at your love for us. You drew us out of darkness when we were going our own way. You paid the price for our sin while we were just indifferent to what you were doing. We thank you, God, for giving us that measure of understanding to see how you are unfolding your plan, formulated before the foundation of the world. Thank you, God, for giving us the faith you give us the faith to believe as we look back on your prophecies and see how they have been fulfilled. And we believe and we know that you accomplished this. And as Tim has been teaching us how you were faithful to keep your promise, you sent Emmanuel, you brought your presence to your people. So we walk confidently into this new year knowing that you will continue to be faithful to your word and your promises. And Father, we will look and see and watch you perform your word. Oh God, create in us more awe of you, more awe of your ways, that we would be less in awe of man and his wisdom, but we would be in awe of your works, that we would be less distracted by petty things, and that we'd be more focused on pursuing you and your ways. Oh God, may there be less introspection and more treasuring and pondering of your word Father, just now we want to be faithful to lift up those in our body who are in need. And you tell us to intercede. And Father, first of all, we thank you and praise you for Emily Hundley's mother's successful surgery. We thank you for Anel's daughter's successful surgery. God, thank you. Please continue your healing work in these two dear ones. And we do lift up Terry in a special way, Father, as he is himself recovering from pacemaker surgery and now is having to attend to his parents his father who is grieving, and we do ask, Father, that in a special way you would comfort him in the loss of his mother. And Father, we lift up Diane Brown as she is waiting for testing this week. We ask you to please be in with her in the MRI, that you would help the doctors be able to determine a diagnosis. Please take away any fear, Father, as she waits, and help her, Father, as she wants to enable her to care for her parents as she goes through her own personal health issues. Father, I thank you so much for how you are at work in the jail ministry. Thank you for those that are faithful to go and visit and proclaim your love. 
And we just thank you that you were used these small gifts that we sent to them to let them know they are not forgotten. So, Father, thank you, too, for especially those that responded to the gospel. May you please provide material and teaching that they would grow in the knowledge of who you are. Father, we thank you when our hearts grow faint in us. It is you who know our way. We trust your promise to continue to supply the needs that you say will be sufficient for the day. Lord, train us to fix our eyes on you continually and not to look at our circumstance because we declare that from you, through you, and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here to worship with us on this first Sunday of the new year. Uh, we'll have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs now. That's uh, three years old through fifth grade. You guys can make your way upstairs. Um, and thank you all for uh, getting up early after staying up late. I'm sure there were lots of um, late nights around here, and uh, this is the right place to be this morning, where we're together in the presence of the Lord and in, his in the presence of his people to open the scriptures together and start a year right. It's an opportunity to have uh, Sunday morning be a New Year's Day. Um, there's a few things going on in the life of the church you need to know about. There's a few of those in the bulletin that you received this morning, um, and a few others that I want you to be aware of. There's a women's event um, on the 21st of this month. You need to sign up for that. There's a sign-up sheet on that table in the back of this room. We'd love for you ladies to be a part of that. Um, also, tomorrow, the church office is closed, but we do have some people coming in to take down our Christmas decorations, and we need a little bit more help. And so if you have two hours to spare, 10 a.m. tomorrow to about noon, uh, we could use some more help to help put all these um, Christmas decorations away. Um, and you can ask me or Ramona questions or Gail Clark questions if you want to be a part of helping with that. Um, next Sunday... We have a special event right after the service in the backstage right behind me. Um, one of our dear, dear families, um, Jim and Florence Wells, will be celebrating their 70th wedding anniversary. And so you are, are invited to join after the service in the backstage cafe right behind me here to celebrate with them. Um, so we want you to be aware of that and to plan to stay if you are able um, this evening, being uh, New Year's Day, we will not have normal kids and youth activities. We'll be back to, really back to normal next week with those sort of things. For now, we'll open the scriptures together. Isaiah chapter 11, we have one more Sunday, um, looking at some of these key messianic passages from Isaiah, um, which is just a, a way of saying that the book of Isaiah is a colossally large book of prophecy. But there are a few really powerful places in which this book of prophecy shines a light on Jesus as the coming Messiah. And uh, we've spent the month of December and now this first Sunday in January looking at those, at those powerful ways that Jesus is anticipated many years before he comes. And one of the themes that comes out of Isaiah, um, and Isaiah chapter 11 in particular, is the theme of trees. And one thing that you might not know is that 
trees are an important theme throughout all of Scripture. Probably one of the most under-recognized themes in Scripture. They're there from the beginning, and God is telling you something in the pages of His Word through the story of trees. Now, don't get me wrong when I use words like story and theme. This is not a fictional story. This is not, we're not approaching themes as if it was a fictional work. But one thing that we can lose sight of when we study the Scriptures is that though it is a work of history, a work of, of God communicating information to us, His people, there are literary genres and literary techniques that God uses through His people to communicate truth to us. So the human authors of Scripture utilize different literary techniques in writing down what God is giving them to say. One of the themes that God chooses to weave throughout the storyline, all throughout Scripture, pointing us to Jesus, is the story of trees. You may have never heard that before. Trees are an essential component of the storyline of Scripture. Here's something else to know about trees. Trees are an essential component to the journey of childhood discovery. And you've probably all been there. See, in, in, when I was growing up, my, neighbor had, my neighborhood had the tree. And it was the tree for like the whole neighborhood. It was five houses from my house. It wasn't my tree, but it kind of was my tree because it was the tree in the area. It was a tree that was an old magnolia, beautiful old magnolia. And there's nothing quite like a magnolia for a kid climbing up and exploring. The canopy effect of the magnolia, the big limbs that sit down on the ground and start to curve back up, the complexity, the ability to just get lost in it, and yet there's still some relative safety because there's big, strong limbs in a magnolia tree. It's fun to explore. It's fun to discover. Five houses down from my house growing up was this beautiful magnolia tree that every kid in the neighborhood knew because it was the climbing tree. Now, in 2022, it probably wouldn't, doesn't work like that because you probably don't want every kid in the neighborhood climbing a tree in your front yard because now you're afraid of lawsuits. But when I was growing up, that wasn't a concern. You have 15 kids from the neighborhood just coming and climbing this same tree that we put a swing on it. We did all sorts of things, all sorts of discovery and activities in this tree because part of growing up is learning how to discover, learning how to explore learning how to navigate through things on your own. And there's something fun about just getting lost in a big tree. And Now, my house, um, fast forward, we have a little magnolia climbing tree for my kids. Our last house, the first house we had in Dalton, had a beautiful, large magnolia tree that reminded me of the one I grew up with. And there is something important for kids to go outside, discover, play, climb, explore. And there's something about that that speaks to the beauty of the tree theme that gets unveiled in Scripture. Because what God is calling us to do when we hear these, this communication coming from Him about trees is He's calling us to, have, to go deeper in our wonder and our awe at His created world. One of the things that we can lose sight of as the people of God is that everything out there, the creation, the green grass, the beautiful trees, the mountains, the streams, those are works of God's handiwork. God's works of art that he has created for us to discover, enjoy, and explore. 
And see, in the ancient world in which, into which God was writing his scriptures, that was the fullest beauty, was his creation. We can, we've come up with all sorts of ways in our day and age to distract from the beauties of creation. We find beauty in so many other things. We live our lives more inside than previous generations did. And so we lose the sense that when we read the scriptures, they are constantly pointing us outside. Not that it's wrong to have air conditioning or live outside or live inside, but it is easy for us as an inside generation to miss all these illustrations, to miss the beauty of exploring God's nature that he is giving us in the scriptures. So I'm going to take you to Isaiah 10 and 11. In verse 1 of Isaiah 11, here's what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now this is not coming out of nowhere. This is the beginning of our passage for today. But I need to back up a little bit to tell you why it's important that Isaiah is all of a sudden using the word shoot, stump, branch, and roots. Four different tree terms coming up in this first verse of this important passage that we're studying today. In the previous passage, God is talking about, first, the remnant of the nation of Israel. Remember, there's two nations at this point. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They are both a part of the original nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people. But the nations split, and this northern kingdom called Israel is made an alliance with another nation, Syria, against the southern nation, Judah. So God's people are, are at enmity with each other. It's not a full-blown war yet, but there's the beginning stages of a war taking place here. And what God is saying is that there is a remnant of faithful people in Israel, but in order to reveal the remnant of his people, he's got to do some hard work, and he's got to cut down some trees. And so look back with me. These won't be on the screen, but if you have your scriptures in front of you, uh, look at verse 33 of chapter 10. Behold, the God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So here's what God is saying here. God's enemies are going to be clear-cut like a forest. God is going to come in with a mighty axe, and all these great nations that have conspired against God, including the nation of Israel, they will all be cut down to their stumps. And actually, as he moves into chapter 11, he starts talking about that's happening in Judah too. So all of these people that have rejected God, that have given up on God, that have followed their other ways, they are going to be cut down to stumps. Now, we have at our property, as I said, a beautiful climbing magnolia tree. It's a little magnolia. But we have a billion trees. Never counted them, but there's a ton of them. And we have, in the five, six years, I don't know how many years we've lived there, five, six years, in the years that we've lived there, we've cut down a great number of them. What happens when you cut down a tree? You cut it down to the stump, and then you walk away, and you think, that tree's gone. And then you come back, and it ain't gone. And all of a sudden, you start to see this little shoot, as the scripture would call it. This, this little branch twig starts to come out of the, 
the stump again because the roots are still alive. They're still sending up new growth. And you see a little stick coming out of the ground. You see green leaves start on it. And if you leave it alone for too long, all of a sudden you have a little miniature tree, again, growing out of the stump that you cut down once already. That is what God is talking about in Isaiah 11.1. That the unfaithful, the unfaithful members of his, of his chosen people have been cut down. The nation has been decimated. Here's what happens to God's chosen people. They reject God, and in response, God allows them. Actually, God sends enemies to them to take them into exile. The people are removed from the land. First Israel, and then Judah. Everybody's removed from God's promised land. And then... He starts bringing them back, a few at a time. You see the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall and the temple. And eventually, there's a nation back in that land again. And at just the right time, there's a root or there's a stump of Jesse, which is Jesse is the father of David, King David. So when he says the stump of Jesse, he's talking about the royal line of kings. Even the royal line of kings has been cut off, but not forever. One day, new growth is going to come out of that stump. That's our setting for Isaiah 11.1. Let's see what else he says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. First phrase of 11.2 tells us that that shoot that grows up out of the stump is a person, an individual. It's a him. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes based on what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall dwell with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover that sea. In those days, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant from the remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. So chapter 10 ends with God cutting down his rebellious people, like clear-cutting a forest. And chapter 11 begins with a root growing into a shoot, growing into a small 
little tree. And from this tree, you see a new ruler from the Davidic line, the line of David, comes a ruler who fears the Lord, practices justice, rules in righteousness, establishes peace, defeats the wicked, restores the oppressed people of Judah and Israel, and he causes the entire earth to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And this ruler is full of the Spirit, led perfectly by the Spirit. But there's a clear contrast, because if you look back at chapter 10, which I encourage you to read later, if you look back at chapter 10, the description of chapter 10 is this empowering, large um, forest, mighty, lofty trees, the cedars of Lebanon. Throughout Scripture, the cedars of Lebanon are known for their strength and for their power. Those are the trees God is cutting down. The strongest trees are the ones that God is cutting down. And in place of the strongest trees comes a tree of lowly estate. That's the story of Jesus. Again, one of the themes of how God likes to tell his true story of how he redeems the world. He demonstrates his glory by raising up out of humble places those that will be used for his glory. Even God himself has come as a child in a humble circumstance from a nothing town. He has come to be the savior of the world. You think a little bit more deeply about this story of trees. You know, the first sin in the scripture happens because of what? A disobedience with regard to a tree. And then you have this nation of Israel is cut down. The nation of Israel is described as a tree and as a vine. It's cut down, and then a shoot grows up, a branch grows up. Jesus shows up, and he is from the hometown, the nothing, no respect hometown of Nazareth. What does Nazareth mean? It means the home of the branch. Literally written into the biblical story is this beautiful picture of Jesus' hometown being the home of the branch. And then that branch grows and grows, and Jesus, in his ministry, um, encourages the nation of Israel. He is tending to the vine of the nation of Israel, and then says in John that others will be grafted into the vine. And then he says to the branches, I am, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will have life. If you do not abide in me, you will not have life. The tree imagery continues to grow and expand to where those of us who are not remnants of the unfaithful Israel and Judah, because we're not descended from Israel or Judah, we are those who have been grafted in by the branch himself. He has grafted us in to this growing vine, this growing tree that is the people of God, the kingdom of God. As I said, the tree and vine imagery in scripture is extensive, it's beautiful, and I just scratched the surface in a quick survey. So here's what I want us to reflect on as we unpack this passage, okay? We're going to look at this passage and we're going to see the way of the Spirit in this passage. Because I'm about to shift our attention from talking about trees and branches to talking about the Spirit of God, which is a huge theme in this passage. And then we're going to talk the effects of the Spirit's movement and leadership over people. That's how we'll unpack this passage. But I want you to think about it being January 1st, the new year. 
We live in a culture and a society that honors the new year. We mark it as a holiday. And as we mark it as a holiday, we stay up late last night in order to ring in the new year with our family and with our friends. And we celebrate and we shoot off fireworks and keep the kids up at night with things exploding outside their windows, stuff like that. But as we do that, we also have this, this um, moment of reflection. We look back, as Jason led us to, to demonstrate gratitude over what God has brought us through over the next year and reflect on what God is going to do over the, next, over the coming year. Okay, so now we have this moment where it's time for us to decide what is 2023? What are going to be our goals? What are our resolutions? What are our desires to see 23 be better than 22? Because this is what we do to ourselves every single year. We get into this point where we think this year's going to be better than last year. Last year, I wanted to do this, 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 and this. Didn't work out. This year, I'm going to do it. I'm going to set clear, attainable goals. I'm going to define them carefully. I'm going to move forward in growth over the next year. There's nothing wrong with that sort of mentality. Some of it we miss because we're wanting to make a big splash. We take on too many things at once. And you want to all of a sudden read the Bible in a year and you want to pray for 30 minutes every day and you want to run a marathon and you want to do all these different things, take up a new hobby. All of those things are good, but sometimes we set the bar so high that then we become discouraged early on. We give up on all of them. When really, the approach to growth is just incremental growth. And let God give the increase. And so here's what I want us to, to reflect on as we look at how the Spirit of God shows up in this passage. Look at how are you going to go deeper into discovering, getting lost in the Scriptures and in the presence of the Spirit of God in this year. I want every one of us now to start thinking about, as we listen to the Word of God be unpacked through the reflection on the Spirit of God, how is the Spirit of God moving me to go deeper into relationship with Him in this coming year? Because look at how the Spirit of God is described in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Him being Jesus, okay? So the disclaimer at the beginning of this is that we're going to look at how we follow the Spirit of God and who the Spirit of God is as defined in 11.2. But the disclaimer is that this is describing Jesus first and foremost. But as Christians, we're called to be followers of Jesus. So there's some truth in here that we can learn on how the Spirit can lead anyone who is in Christ as a new creation in Him. And there's seven aspects of the Spirit that are described here. Jess, in doing her Bible in a year reading, she asked me a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that. She said, hey, so I'm reading in Revelation. It's talking about the sevenfold Spirit of God. What does that mean? Like, I don't know. It's a really confusing scriptural idea. Some would say this is what it means, 11.2. There are seven descriptions. It's actually kind of cool. Isaiah 11.2, Revelation has this mysterious reference to the sevenfold Spirit of God. And here's the Spirit of God described in seven ways in one verse in Isaiah 11.2. I'm not sure that there's a direct connection line between those two things. I still think that the book of Revelation is shrouded in mystery and that definition of the sevenfold Spirit of God is hard to come by. But this may give us a glimpse at how God defines His Spirit in seven ways. Seven ways for today, and of this, 
We want to see how we can go deeper in following Christ by following his spirit. The spirit of the Lord. The spirit of God is the spirit of the Lord. We recognize that when we reflect on the spirit, some of us are uncomfortable already with just me using the word, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. Because certain churches get uncomfortable to talk about the Holy Spirit because certain other churches are way too comfortable talking about the Holy Spirit and they make us uncomfortable over here. And so now we live in this church world where we don't know how to talk about the Spirit because we don't like the way they talk about it. So we want to be careful how we talk about it and then we get confused about how we should even talk about it because we don't want to look like them and they don't want to look like us. So nobody knows whether we agree on who the Spirit of God is or not. But let me tell you who the Spirit of God is. It is the Spirit of the Lord God. It is not, it is not something other than God. He, the Spirit, is a He, and He is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, and yet maintaining their own autonomous roles in which they, in which they move and they work separately, but with common goals. It's to the extent that Theologians will say the operations of the Trinity cannot be separated because though they achieve different, different tasks in their work, they are constantly working together in a unified way to accomplish the same thing. So in creation, you have God the Father speaking things into creation. You have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and you have Colossians saying that everything that was created in creation was created by through, and for Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're together, working together in creation. At the cross and resurrection, you have God pouring out the wrath of the whole world on Jesus, his Son, and you have the Spirit of God raising the Son to newness of life. All three together, important components of the gospel, of the cross, burial, and resurrection. So the first thing we know about the Spirit is he is not someone other than God. He is God, and he should be treated as God, and he should not be ignored because we're uncomfortable talking about him and because we don't like the way another church talks about him. The Spirit of God is, is someone we should study, we should reflect on, we should understand. So first sermon of 2023, here we go. Who is the Spirit? There's six further ways that he's described here. He is the Spirit of wisdom. That means that if we are following the Spirit of God, we will be operating in wisdom. According to the book of Proverbs, wisdom is associated with trust in God and fear of God. Wisdom is the ability to, is the practical skill that is given to understand a situation and live in response to what you see. Wisdom is making the decision without knowing the full outcome, but being able to anticipate the outcome and see this is the wise decision I should make in this circumstance. There is a way to learn through experience. And, some, and when you learn through experience, you have to make mistakes. Wisdom is a way of learning and observing that you don't have to make the mistakes to understand what the implication of those mistakes would be. That's what wisdom is. Understanding part two of this is the ability to see beyond is, is like wisdom. Wisdom is the practical skills to making the right decision in a right, under, in a right circumstance. Understanding goes a little bit deeper to God, just be the practical skills of how to make that decision. 
But it's a God-given perception of nature and meaning of things that goes beyond just your decision-making and what decision you make in a setting, but to understand what is motivating and what is, what is causing all those things around you to happen. Wisdom means the Spirit of God teaches me or demonstrates to me what I should do in a challenging circumstance. Understanding helps me look beyond the surface of the circumstances I'm in and see that there's a real spiritual battle that is waging all around me and to understand that my role in it is to discern the spiritual truths and apply those to my humanity and my human obedience of God. To see beyond just the physical into the spiritual world and to make decisions based on that. Counsel. So the spirit is the spirit of the Lord. He's God himself. He is a spirit of wisdom that gives you the ability to make practical decisions. He is a spirit of understanding that helps you look deeper beyond the surface of the physical into the spiritual realm. He is the spirit of counsel, meaning you don't know how to make all of your own decisions and solve all your own problems. And that's just a basic truth of humility and humanity. Uh, two chapters before, Isaiah said that this same child that we're talking about, Jesus, would come as the wonderful counselor. And when he comes as wonderful counselor, he comes to a people that can't solve their own problems, that don't understand everything, that need some advice. Proverbs 15 says, without counsel, plans go wrong, but with many advisors, they succeed. We live in a very individualistic moment in history. We live in a society, a culture, in a moment in history in which we are taught, we are encouraged to make decisions by ourselves, for ourselves, with especially our own interests in mind. That's a really dangerous recipe for how to live a life of faithfulness to God. Because God is giving us the spirit of counsel. And so the spirit of God leads us back to his word for counsel, for information, for instruction, for advice on how to respond in a giving setting. He gives us wisdom to make good decisions, understanding to discern the spiritual realities, and counsel practical advice from his scripture and through the presence of his spirit to know how to react and respond in giving situations. But he's also the spirit of might or strength. He is the spirit who's, again, Isaiah 9, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father and prince of peace the spirit of might is used like the mighty god to encourage us in the fact that we cannot we cannot just like in in the the uh, spirit of counsel we cannot solve our own problems come up with our own solutions the spirit of might reminds us we cannot defeat our own enemies we can't win our own battles but here is god the spirit uh, giving us through christ the spirit of might through which Jesus conquers over our enemies for us. Might or strength, as it's described here, is the physical capability to achieve, conquer, succeed in strength over one's enemy. This, the action of Jesus under the influence of the spirit of might, are so different from the actions of the king of his day. Ahaz, the king who is, is described here in Isaiah, Ahaz and the Assyrian kings, they are making arrogant 
and unwise plans. They are not thinking of spiritual realities. They're not thinking of obedience to God. God has no factor in their plans at all. But we, we don't have to think in terms of human might. We don't have to think in terms of natural strength. We make our decisions to follow Christ when it is hard, to follow Christ specifically into the hard challenges of our life, knowing that he is the conquering king who has given us the spirit of strength. He's also given us the spirit of knowledge. This is an experiential knowledge because there's a difference between knowing about something and really knowing something. We all know the difference, but I'll, I'll explain it this way. Um, Karis got roller skates for Christmas. Karis is six. Um, she loved those roller skates. Remember, by the way, that, that Christmas was like freezing cold, beyond freezing cold. It was like 10 or 12 degrees Christmas morning. And we came here for church on Christmas. We celebrated. We worshiped together. Went back to the home. She had her roller skates, and all she wanted to do was try out her new roller skates. And she asked all day long, can we go to the church parking lot? Can we work on my roller skates? Because there's not, you know, our driveway's kind of like that. Our street is kind of windy. It's not a good place for roller skates, especially when you've never done them before, like my six-year-old. So eventually what happens is Karis, Jericho, and I, we go, we come here, to the church property, go to the parking lot, and we're going to work on roller skates. Jericho's shooting a bow and arrow, but Karis has roller skates. Jericho's not shooting a bow and arrow at Karis as she's learning roller skates. Just clarify, defend the reputation of my son there. Okay, so Karis is doing roller skates, but here's the twist. It was freezing cold. So the roller skater in the household was not present at the roller skating lesson. Jess, Jess is at home. Jess is warm. Jess and Eden are the smart ones in the family. They're home. They're warm. The other three of us are out here in the freezing cold trying to learn how to roller skate. I know how to roller skate. Ish. And so here I am with Karis trying to walk her through. This is how you roller skate. These are the motions you make. I don't have my own roller skate, so it's not like I can really show her, but it probably would have been worse if I showed her because then she wouldn't trust me at all. But because... I'm not the best roller skater. I was not the best teacher. And eventually it got down to the point where I was like, honey, you just got to do it. Because I know what to do, but I can't do it anyway. So let me just hold your hand. We'll walk around and you just keep doing it. The spirit of knowledge in this passage is referring to an experiential knowledge where we don't just know facts about the truth of God. That's important. That's essential. You cannot re live in response to facts you don't know. Okay? You got to know the facts. But then you just got to get out there and live. You've got to experience what it's like to walk by faith. You can learn the verses that tell you about faith. You can memorize them. You can memorize catechisms from the great saints of old that tell us the definitions of what it means to live a life of faith. But until you have walked through the fire, until you have walked through trials, had to suffer, had to face this decision of, am I going to continue to follow Christ even though my life hurts right now, even though maybe following Christ cost me something in a relationship, even though I'm not fully certain of what Christ is doing in this scenario, I'm going to trust by faith that he has my good, that he is working together for my good. 
that's the spirit of knowledge. It's experiential knowledge where the spirit walked with us to help us understand our experiences of life and walking by faith in light of what the scriptures reveal. He gives us wisdom to make decisions in difficult circumstances, understanding to discern the spiritual realities, counsel for advice and encouragement on how to live the, the Christian life, might to overcome our enemies for us, and experiential knowledge by which we have, just like Karis, need to get experiential knowledge when roller skates, but I'm not just pushing her out there, I'm guiding her through it, so the Spirit of God is leading us by the hand through the challenging circumstances of our life, so we gain this, the experiential knowledge of what it means to walk by faith. But then it all rounds out. The experiential knowledge moves into the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. People trip over this idea of the fear of the Lord. Lord, <clears throat> It is a fear that has to be recognized within the context of the love of God, the loving response we have to a creator who has saved us, the hope we have in eternity. Romans 8 defines the the fear that we have in this way. He says us, he tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 8, that God has not given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But a spirit of adoption as sons through which we call out Abba, Father. So we have, in Scripture, we are told, you should fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That walking by the Spirit is walking in accordance with the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And yet Romans 8 also says, God has not given us a spirit of slavery that falls into fear, but a spirit of sonship that moves us to call out and love to our Father. So the fear of the Lord is a complex scriptural idea that we can't just set aside because we don't like it, that we have to fully embrace. Fear of the Lord is not slavish fear, where we fear a God that's going to get us if we keep messing up. That's the fear that a non-believer should have of God. And if that fear compels you to respond to the gospel and receive new life in Christ, then that's appropriate. But once you receive new life in Christ, you no longer live with Christ in that slavish fear because you've received adoption as sons and daughters. You've been welcomed into the family. So now you have an awe-filled respect a somber respect for the, the Father who is the King, who is the God of the universe, who has declared what is righteous and set out a pattern of how you should follow him and said, follow me, it looks like this. We should have such reverence that we fear disobeying this Father. And yet that fear should be in the context of love and a faithful reverence to the God and Father who has loved us, who has saved us, who has set us on a new path for life. Verse 3 tells us how this fear, how this spirit of God has moved into Christ and what Christ does with the fear of God. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. The language here connects directly to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 said, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. 
here, Jesus' delight is in the fear of the Lord. You can synchronize those two statements. Psalm 1 is actually talking about Jesus as the picture of the man that is blessed. Psalm 1 is not, is in part, a guide for us to follow to see what the faithful life life looks like. But more than that, Psalm 1 is a description of Jesus and how Jesus is blessed and perfect because he delights in the law of the Lord. Even Jesus, as the Son of God, delighted in the fear of the Lord and he stayed connected to the fear of the Lord through the law of the Lord. So now we come into this question, okay? How do you stay connected to the Spirit of God? Jesus, the Son of God, required discipline to stay connected to the Spirit of God. And so why would we be any different? Why would we haphazardly try to live the Christian life without any intentional discipline that helps us remain connected to the Spirit of God? Jesus intentionally remained connected to the Spirit of God by rising early by going off by himself he experienced the the uh, spirit of god the presence of god through one-on-one interactions with god's spirit through the study of the law of the lord and through the community of others we should do the same and we should especially on new year's day increase our intentionality to do the same it's okay to make resolutions to make practical steps and goals. Make them achievable. Make them, make them goals that you will fulfill, that you will see through to the finish. But make a goal to go deeper in the Word of God this year. Make a goal to go deeper in the Spirit of God through prayer this year. Make a goal to live in a greater sense of Christ's mission this year. The effects of the work of the Spirit on Jesus go like this, verses 4 and following. Verses 4 and following, you see righteousness and and justice play out. With righteousness, he, Jesus, shall judge the poor, decide with equity. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He kills the the wicked. So Jesus reigns in righteousness and justice. Verses 5 through 8, the most confusing part of this passage, by the way. Verses 5 through 8 describe this sort of incredible peace in which the animals are at peace with each other and fierce, vicious animals are at peace with humanity as well. This is one of those points of biblical prophecy where it's helpful to say that in biblical prophecy, one event that is foreseen triggers a whole series of events. And when the biblical prophecy says this happens and then this happens, we don't know everything that goes on in the in-between. And so this has happened. Jesus has been born. The Messiah has come. The shoot has come up out of the stump of Jesse. But verses 5 through 8 don't sound like any period of history we've ever seen before. Because it's wolves and sheep living in peace with each other. It's babies putting their hands over poisonous snakes and not being bitten. It's a sort of incredible time of peace that is a recapturing of the peace of Eden. And this is something that we have not yet realized, that we have not yet seen. Different interpretations will try to explore or explain this passage in different ways, but I would simply say there's nothing like verses 5 through 8 that we have seen, but that doesn't make the scriptures untrue. It just means that not everything in the prophecy of this passage has been fully fulfilled yet. Christ has come. He has started his reign in peace and justice, but that has not fully been been realized because there's some wicked people prospering on the earth today. One day that will not be the case. And on the day that wicked people stop prospering on the earth, 
babies will be able to put their hands in front of poisonous snakes and not be bitten. That's the sort of, of prophecy that we're seeing unfolded here. Some of it has come to pass. The child has come. The child fulfilled all of those aspects of the Spirit in verse 2, but not all of the implications of this passage have yet been seen. But the effects of the Spirit of God over Jesus is a righteous and justice reign over all peoples, peace in all areas, and every nation will know. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations require, and his resting place shall be glorious. We will not see the fullness of this passage come out until the very end of time, when all the nations will fully know and there will be peace on earth. But here's how we participate in it right now. The holy mountain with the signal to all nations, that has, in Christ, already been established. And that Jesus has already come for all nations. We have not seen all nations come to Jesus, come physically to a holy mountain but Jesus, as the signal for all nations of repent of your sin, come and receive new life in Christ, come and be born again, that call has gone out to all nations, and that call is our responsibility to deliver. And so this morning, we get to close our service at the Lord's table. And in a few minutes, we're going to together receive the broken body of Jesus, in the bread, and the shed blood of Jesus in the juice. A powerful reminder, a means of grace in which we see and experience and we taste that we are one with Christ. But as we do this, let me encourage you on a few things. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that every one of us was like the nation of Israel or Judah, and we deserved to be cut down to the roots. We deserve to be cut off from God, to face punishment from Him. But because of the root that grew up into this, this small twig, this small tree that grew up into a mighty tree of God's kingdom, we have been grafted into the family of God. That only happens through the shed blood of Jesus that we're about to participate in. So for each of us, there is a declaration at this table that I am a sinner that I deserve eternal condemnation. That there's no way out of the condemnation that I deserve unless someone dies for me to pay the penalty. I repent of my sin and receive the new life in him and I commit my life to him in following. We believe Jesus, we repent of our sins and we commit to follow him. This is what we must know. The Spirit of God convicts us of our sin, shows us from the Scriptures where we have fallen short of God's law. And at this table today, the first day of a new year, it is the right time to discern in your own heart and mind, where am I with Christ? Have I confessed of my sin? Have I, con have I received Him for new life? And am I ready? Am I ready to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus? Because let me tell you about this table. This is a family table. This is a family meal that we're about to engage in. 
This is designed to be a meal that is received by those that have received Jesus. So if you have any question today about whether or not you are with Jesus, my encouragement to you would be not to receive the broken body and the shed blood yet, but to come and talk to me and make sure that you know the truth of the gospel and have responded to the gospel, and then you eat and you receive the, the, the broken body and shed blood of Christ for forgiveness for your sins. But as we do this, I have a specific challenge for you. For those of us that are in Christ, how do we go deeper in the spirit of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding, of might? How are you going to, in a practical step, go deeper this year? So many of those implications of the spirit of God are knowledge-based, information-based. Some of them are experiential but one of the mistakes we make in talking about the Spirit is we act as if the Spirit is all emotional. The biggest way we make a mistake in talking about the Holy Spirit is assuming that the Spirit just fuels emotional reactions to God and Jesus. That's not the case. The Spirit of God, as described in 11.2, is much more informational than emotional. Sure, you should have an emotional response to new life in Christ and to the work of the Spirit primary ministry of the Spirit is to convict you of your sin, to reveal who God is, and to call you to Christ-likeness, not to stir up your emotions. And so how will you go deeper in the, your walk with the Spirit this year? It's not by pursuing emotion. It's by pursuing faithfulness, practical discipleship and discipline. So I'd encourage each of you, take, take, out, take out your little half sheet of paper right now. Maybe you have a little a pen Maybe you have a piece of paper or something. Maybe you're taking notes on your phone. Taking notes on your phone, put it down, pick up a pen and paper. Just kidding. Sort of just kidding. Sort of serious. Um, And I want you to, now, before we approach the Lord's table, write down a practical step. How are you going deeper in the scriptures this year? How are you going deeper in the spirit this year? Is it through the scriptures? Is it through prayer? Is it in accountability with other people? Is it in accountability with your own family? So how are you going deeper in the scriptures? Number one. How are you going deeper in the spirit through prayer? Number two. And number three. How are you going to represent the signal to all nations in your daily walk and life? Because that signal for all nations, Jesus, he's already there. And we have the opportunity and the responsibility to proclaim him to every nation. So here's the specific challenge for question number three. Number one, how do you go deeper in the scriptures? Number two, how do you go deeper in prayer? Number three, is there anyone in particular? Be super specific. Write a name down. Write five names down. There's no limits. Is there someone in your life that you need to be a messenger of the gospel within their life in this coming year? That's the sort of New Year's resolutions and goals that we make as a body together to commit into deeper walk with Christ and to a deeper representation of his mission in all the earth. So I'm going to give you a minute to reflect on that and write that down. I'm going to ask those that are serving communion to join me up here and ask the band to join the, to go on stage behind me. As we approach this table, 
we approach the broken body of Jesus. This is not insignificant. Let's get four over here and four over here. This is a significant experience for us. It's not a rote practice. It's an experience of the grace of God where we remember today, where you consume on this first day of the year the body of Christ, not literally, but a representation of the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So how it's going to work is I'm going to pray. We're going to distribute the bread first, and the guys are going to come right back. You're going to hold the bread while they're leading us in a song. The guys are going to come right back and bring you the juice next. Hold the bread, hold the juice, and then after this song, we're going to come back and we're going to receive it all together. First the bread, the broken body, and then the juice, the shed blood. And as you're as you're receiving them now, I'd encourage you, take the posture that is right for your worship right now. You could stand and sing with arms lifted high. You can kneel at your seat. You can sit in silent reverence as you reflect on the broken body and the shed blood and what Christ has done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you have sent Jesus And Jesus lived a perfect life and deserved righteous reward for it because of his perfect obedience. And yet he took our sin on himself so that you could pour out your wrath on him so that our punishment would be paid for. And then the Spirit of God resurrected Jesus up from the dead. Jesus, after he had resurrected, lived on earth for a few days. And Father, we thank you that he left the earth because of Jesus' promise, it is better for you that I go away. And now this spirit that we've described in seven ways today dwells in each of us. As we receive the broken body, we receive the shed blood. Father, give us this awareness of the spirit of God and his reality here with us this morning. Spirit, move in our hearts and in our minds. Give us deeper knowledge of you deeper hunger for you, and Father, send us out as your ambassadors of your gospel. If there's anyone here, Father, that has not received the gospel, God, move in a heart right now, inflame a heart, rebirth a heart, so that these elements can be received in purity and in new life. Father, we thank you. We pray that each one of us would receive a deeper experiential knowledge of your grace through the elements we receive this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.
you to take the bread and juice in your hand, the preparation to receive the Lord's Supper is a time of reflection, a time of recognizing our dependence, the truth that the life we receive, we do not receive from ourselves, our own effort, but we receive it through the work of Christ. And here, this morning, we receive 
the finished work of Christ in a physical form, we taste and see that the Lord is good by actually consuming a representation of his body and his blood. So first we take the body that was bruised, bloodied, and broken for us. We take and eat in remembrance of him. And next, we take the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for us, the atonement for sin established from the first pages of scripture with shed blood. Now, a once and for all sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, every nation, tongue, and tribe. We receive this in gratitude because of what Christ has done for us. Amen. As we receive the Lord's Supper, the discipline that we have taken here at Fellowship Bible Church is that we seek to receive the Lord's Supper and then return our gratitude and thanks to Him through a physical offering. This offering that we take now is not for the general operation of the church, but this is a Samaritan offering that specifically goes outside of the church to meet with physical and financial needs, people within our church family and people out in the community. It goes of various different places through different community organizations and connections we have to serve those in real need, but not just serve them with physical and financial needs, but serve them with the ministry of the gospel as well. Let me pray for the offering and then we'll receive it. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to freely receive and freely give. And out of the abundance of what you have given to us and entrusted to us as your stewards, now, Father, we express our gratitude and return it back to you in faithful giving. May you, Father, bless this money as it accomplishes its purpose of being an instrument of grace from your throne room into your kingdom and for your glory, Father. Use this money to encourage the believer and to reach the lost. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. as we close, I invite you to stand and receive the blessing from the Lord. From number 6, 24 through 26, we end our services with this blessing as a recognition 
that the high priest would speak this blessing from God himself over the people of Israel once their sins had been atoned for. And as new creations in Christ, all of us who believe, we live in the state of having our sins atoned for every day because the once and for all sacrifice has taken our sin away. And now these words can be true. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.